This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. All right, so hello everyone. We are back with Mind Your Body, the dance movement therapy podcast. And today I am really excited to have this conversation with Dr. Angela Grayson. Angela is an award-winning therapist, best-selling author, transformational healer, speaker, and educator. Angela is the president-elect for the American Dance Therapy Association and is a board-certified DMT and LPC with her own practice. Angela is a professor at Drexel University and has shared her expert opinion on multiple media outlets regarding mental health, diversity, spirituality, and dance movement therapy. Angela is passionate about educating others about the interconnection between culture, spirituality, and multicultural aspects of dance movement therapy. Welcome, Angela. Thank you so much, Orise. Glad to be here with you. Yeah. I'm your so audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sure everyone's really excited that you're here too. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. We briefly met last week on the phone and talked about what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And we decided that we're going to explore and you're going to share your expertise and perspective on inclusion within the dance movement therapy community. So to start off, um, you know, I thought it was really important that when I had asked you, like, shall we talk about diversity and inclusion? And you said, I think it's really important to focus specifically on inclusion. So can you help us define or help us understand more about what inclusion means? Absolutely. Um, And yeah, and I was glad that we had opportunity to talk last week as well, just to briefly go over some things. Um, And the reason that I wanted to focus on inclusion versus diversity is because inclusion is really more about advocacy and making sure that there are opportunities for different voices, different opinions, different um, creative ideas and flow um, versus diversity. You, You can be diverse, but not inclusive, right? Because diversity is really more about representation. So you could have representation, but if that representation feels like they still don't have a voice, then you're really not being inclusive. And so inclusivity is really about advocating and saying, you know, I'll take a step back so that this other person who has different, you know, ways of being, different ideas, different um, thought processes, or even experiences from myself can have voice and can talk about their experience in relation to whatever topic is, is being discussed or whatever you know, program is being designed so that there's a different um, worldview lens that is being looked through and not just the one that we typically look through, which is the societal lens. And so we want to make sure that we're including people from different parts of the world and different backgrounds, ethnicities and spiritual practices and, you know, just ways of being in the world. Hmm. I'm wondering if you can give an example of the difference because I want to make sure I'm understanding and I want to make sure everyone else is understanding like do you have an example of what it would look like to be 
you know, to include, well, maybe that's not the right word, but to include diversity and then have a program or, or community organization that has that kind of step further of inclusion? Like what are the differences? Mm -hmm. So for example, if I were teaching dance classes, but I only specifically focused on ballet versus say African dance or, um, or an ethnic, ethnic folklore dance class, then I, I'm being diverse because anybody can come to the ballet class, right? But I'm not being inclusive because I'm also not including other dance forms that may speak directly to the people who showed up for the ballet class. I'm not being inclusive of, of people who are from the African diaspora, for example, who study African dance or their normal body um, functioning and pattern, patterning and you know ways of moving in space is more Afrocentric. So if I'm excluding that from the class then I'm not being inclusive of their culture and their input from a movement perspective and physicality even. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Um, and how does this kind of translate into the dance therapy um, community specifically or the ADTA community specifically? Um, what are some things that you have seen that like I, I have seen that we have the multi multicultural groups and affinity groups and mm -hmm. there's work that has been done there and is continuing to be done there. But what is missing from those or from even just like that movement that is still short on inclusion? Um, it, it's definitely better than it, it was because um, just thinking about the last 55 years, we're actually going into our 56th year as an organized association, yay us. Um, but the ADTA in and of itself has always been diverse just in terms of anybody can go to school, you know, get their master's degree in dance movement therapy. So it could be Native American, um, Latinx community, African-American, LGBTQIA plus community, folks with um, disability, you know, whether it's um, hearing, sight, physical, mental, emotional ability. So all of that is diverse. Is it necessarily inclusive? If those people from those populations are not able to say, this is what my unique, unique set of needs are and have that be responded to in a positive way to make accommodations, then that's not inclusive. And so what we've been doing in terms of the association and particularly the Multicultural and Diversity Committee is having you know, people come together in affinity groups to you know, really support each other where there has been um, a lack of support in previous years. And so the affinity group was a way of bringing people together to have more support and to talk about the challenges of whatever affinity it is. For example, I'm also a member of the Native American Affinity Group. But if you look at me, you wouldn't think that I have Native American heritage. The only thing that most people see is that I'm a black woman, right? And so the Native American Affinity Group is probably one of the newer groups. And so we're talking 55 years where there have been really no um, audible Native American voice or even a Native American presence. Now there have been Native American rituals incorporated 
but not actually performed or uh, presented by folks who identify as Native American. And so then we get into the whole appropriation thing, which, which causes other problems. And so it's better to have full representation, full inclusivity, so that if I want to do something that is outside of the scope of who I am as a person, I will go to the source. I may go to an affinity group or somebody who identifies with, for example, if I wanted to incorporate uh, a Latin American dance or you know, Hispanic dance or ritual or cultural um, performance or you know, presentation, I'm gonna do my due diligence and look up some information, but I'm also gonna go to the Latin American affinity group and say, hey, is this okay? You know, could I partner with you, right? I'm not going to take it over and just go out and do it. I'm, I'm going to partner with somebody from that specific community so that it is more inclusive and culturally specific and relevant. Mm. That's a really good point. And that makes me wonder about in terms of providing services. So this is a bit of a different path, but like in terms of us, dance therapist providing services and um, aiming to be more inclusive with the services that we provide, the communities we run. Like I know, um, you know, I have a fairly large online community for my business and we are predominantly white. Like I think as a white woman, that is mostly who I tend to attract. And also there are things that I know that I, um, that I'm looking and learning into how to create a more inclusive community. And so when you said that, um, it's the difference between certain practices of like, I wouldn't just go and be like, Hey, I have these specific services for black women, but I would go and, um, perhaps collaborate um, or learn from a supervisor who is black or something like that versus just like kind of doing it on my own. And I don't know, making assumptions, I think would be the, the word is that kind of yeah. what you're talking about. Absolutely. Because when, when we do that, we, we are still only operating from our own experience in our worldview and what we think should happen in that space. You know, when we, you know, try to offer a service or try to include things from different perspectives. As therapists, of course, we, we want to do our due diligence and to, you know, get educated and really make sure that we're understanding our clients, patients, students, depending on the population that you're working with. Um, but in, in terms of really kind of more like what you're talking about, offering ongoing services or offering programming and, and different things like that, you really want to make sure that you're not going to cause harm and that you are going to be open enough and not sensitive or defensive if something comes up in this, in this space that you're not familiar with or that you've never heard of, because I think that that also does a disservice to the group that you're saying that you want to help. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important topic here too, um, about that sensitivity and the defensiveness that um, I think we are seeing come up a lot. Um, I think that has been there for a very, very long time, but 
amplified within the last, you know, six, six, seven months or so. Well, I guess it's eight months at this point. Um, so I'm wondering, so you, you've talked about include like this is one important piece of in- inclusivity is um, making sure that we are finding, exploring more information from the cultures and religions and um, identities that we are wanting to include more in whatever we are creating. Um, another piece that I'm hearing is in that, how do we navigate what comes up in those moments where, um, yeah, I guess perhaps I can just reflect, like, (laughs) I'm trying to word the question and like, not sure how to word it, but maybe you can give more information of like, what is kind of the common sensitivities that come up and how do we navigate them? Um, I think the common sensitivity that comes up or even insensitivity for that matter is jumping in without trying to build a relationship. Um, I think the relationship piece is what gets left off a lot of times. And when there's no relationship, there's so much room for error, misrepresentation, misinterpretation, miscommunication. Um, And so building relationship is, is key to, you know, even cross collaborating, sharing information, or even learning, um, being in a learning space to to better understand. The only way you can really understand something is to have a relationship with it, whether it's a person, a thing, a place, um, to really kind of get into the culture. And I'll give you a a great example. Whenever I travel, um, you know, when we travel internationally, we stay at, you know, the nice resort, you know, whether it's, you know, Hilton, Hyatt, whatever. Um, We can do that here in the States. So whenever I I travel um, to another country, I always make it a point to become familiar with the service staff. So whether it's the, you know, folks that are cleaning, the folks that are cooking or or whoever, like the the local people that live there, that's who I want to talk to. I want to make, you know, conversation, get friendly, get to know them. And so that I can say, hey, what time do you get off work? Do you mind showing me around rather than taking the tour that they have developed mm-hmm. because they're only gonna show the best parts of the place or the places that they've already fixed up that they want you to see of the country. But I really wanna be immersed in the culture. And so I want to talk to the people who live there, you know, and, and you show me your country, you show me, you know, what it is about your country that makes it what it is, it makes it beautiful, that makes it hard or difficult. And I, I wanna see what's actually happening. And so that, that's um, the best example that I can think of at the moment in terms yeah. of really building relationship and really wanting to understand, you know, somebody else that's, you know, either looks different from I do, speaks a different language, has a different culture, a different ideation, a different worldview. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's feels like it's going to be so much more authentic and, and valuable asking the people who actually live there. Um, but that brings up a question for me um, because I know a lot of these conversations are happening. I've had some personal discussions with friends of dance therapists of color about like they don't want that burden to be on them. So when you give that example, I'm like, that sounds really great. But what about, what if it's like, well, I don't want to show you my country. Like I've, 
I've tried to do that. You know, I'm, I'm just kind mm-hmm. of adapting to your example, but like, what if I don't want to teach you about what, what would, what it would mean to be inclusive or to include me in your community? Like I'm, I know there are people who are so tired and fatigued and have dealt with being so unseen that they're exhausted and don't have that energy to, to show you their country or show you, um, what is important to know? How do we approach that? Mm-hmm. Great question. And I think, um, when that comes up for people of color is that we're tired of teaching. And, and what I'm referring to is not about teaching another culture about us is really about being in listening mode, being in the receptive chair and not being like soaking everything up like a sponge so that I can go and take it and use it somewhere else. You know, like I'm now the expert because now I have all of the answers, which is a different way of being. And I think for people of color, that has been the experience. Like we teach and teach and teach about culture and, you know, and then that goes, for example, I use Hollywood. It goes mainstream, but the people that you were just talking to when learning from and they're teaching you everything about hip hop, let's say, for example, you don't use them when you go to make the film. Now you're using other people who don't look like who you just talked to to get the information from. So I think that's the, the biggest difference is, yeah, we'll share and open, open ourselves up to, you know, sharing about our culture, spirituality, um, orientation and ways of being and identities. But then what happens to that information once you leave? Mm. And I think that that's where the harm comes in. And that's where people are feeling disenfranchised rather than we're really building a relationship, you know, that's going to be beneficial to us both long lasting. It's not just going to be for the purpose of writing a journal article or making a video and then we're never going to see each other again. Oh, okay. That's a, um, that's a layer I hadn't heard before. So that's really helpful. Um, that there's that piece, uh, like the part of it that's really exhausting is almost, it almost feels like we, it's almost continuing the, the damage of like using people of color for their information or what they can offer us and then using that to our benefit or advantage without actually continuing a relationship. Exactly. That's what you're right. saying. Yes. Yeah. Or um, even being, being given credit. That, that's the other thing that happens is like, you know, cultures come, you know, and intermingle. But then, like I said, like, for example, um, if I were to immerse myself in Asian culture, and learn everything that I could, ask all the questions, write everything down. And then I go write a best-selling book and I never mention any of the people or cultures or anything that I learned or where I got the original information from to write this best-selling book. And then I don't give any of the proceeds back to the community that I got the information from. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, how do we start I guess I, I wonder how do we begin these conversations and um, or begin these relationships, I guess, because there have been, and like, I'm going to use myself as an example here. There have been, you know, there are people who I collaborate in the dance therapy community. There are people of color I collaborate with there. And then also 
um, women of color who I collaborate with outside. And it's just like a totally, I know we're kind of focusing on the dance therapy community, but it has been a totally different experience. Um, something I actually learned in, um, at Drexel a long time ago when I was taking the supervision on supervision course, I think that's what it was called, mm -hmm. is that when you're working with a super supervisee of, um, you know, any supervisee, the, the, there's an age difference, there's a cultural, religious difference, mm -hmm. any, um, any differences that you see between each other is important to bring up in the very, very beginning and say like, just very clearly, like I'm, um, I'm a white woman, you're a, um, a black woman, for example, and what, what do you think might come up or what, how do you think we might see each other's worlds, our own worlds differently, or where um, we have differences that might come up as tension points in our relationship or, or places where we might disagree. Um, something along those lines. And when I've you know, when I've asked this question for um, people who are in the even creative arts therapy community, it's like a very, mostly a very receptive question. When I have asked that outside the, the community, it, I've gotten a lot of different answers like, oh, like, I don't really, that doesn't really um, matter to me. Like, I think we can collaborate and it's fine. And I don't know, kind of like, there's no, there's like kind of a stop. And so part of me wonders, and, and maybe this is my, um, my lack of, or maybe my fear of not continuing that conversation of like, kind of, are you sure? Or it, I, I come to this point where I'm like, should I press it? Should I try to open it up more or respect that either they, um, there is nothing, I don't know if there's nothing, but there's nothing that they want to share right now, or, um, they just don't want to explore that with me. There's not, it's not comfortable. So long, long story into a question is like, how do we, um, navigate the preferences that, um, people have with how much they want to share or explore in these relationships, or how do we enter that relationship? Another great question, and, and that really what that brings up for me is the trust level, right? So when you're building relationship with someone, you're also building up a trust level, and so the the stronger connection and you know the more open and honest conversation you can have, that obviously increases the level of trust. And if the level of trust is high enough for me to be vulnerable, then I will share more with you, right, and more information. But if I'm still feeling like there's a power differential, because if you're the supervisor and I'm the supervisee, ultimately you're still giving me a grade, which translates into credits or whatever. So the, the power differential is, is what kind of keeps things at, in check in terms of how much I let my guard down because I need to get, you know, get through this internship or whatever the situation is and the supervision is part of that. So I need to make sure that I'm, you know, relaying enough information for me to get a good grade, the credits, whatever. But in building relationship, I, I can really say, you know, for example, um, if I had a client who was um, a different 
different from me just in terms of let's use religion because that's something that it's been coming up more often as well. So there were some religious differences and, you know, I was really struggling because the, the client's religion was so greatly different from mine and I'm trying to understand and be understanding, but the client is really kind of badgering me about, you know, their religious stance and wanting me to agree. And I just can't because it goes against what I believe in. So if I trust you enough to bring that into supervision, then I need support around, okay, how do I navigate the situation that may also rub against your religious beliefs? And so like, there's these, always these dynamics in, in play um, in terms of the power differentials that happen. And so how to um, non-judgmentally hold the space and to be open enough to hold the space without being offended, which goes back to what I was saying before about not being defensive, but being open to hold the space regardless of what comes up. And, and I use this a lot, even with um, couples that have children. So one of my homework assignments for them is always incorporate a family meeting where nobody will get in trouble because if the children feel like they can come and tell you any and everything, guess what will happen? They will trust you enough to say somebody's bullying them or they're being sexually targeted or whatever the situation and that'll be information for you to support and help them rather than to discipline them. And so the same thing works across different relationships, being able to you know, hold the space for vulnerability and not let that rub against what I may be feeling inside. Yes, I'm going to attend to myself, but in the moment might not be the best time to do that. And so knowing when, and it's a dance, you know, knowing when, when to, you know, push or when to pull or when to just be still. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of these conversations are happening online, though, where you're not getting that, like, that feedback, right? Like, mm -hmm. you can't really attune to the, to each other's bodies or the facial expressions or read those nonverbal cues. And <clears throat> a lot of these conversations are kind of, um, blowing up in a way. I don't know if that's the right word or right term to use, but it's, it feels difficult. Like I know I've seen a lot and I haven't engaged in the Facebook groups. Like, um, I'm not sure where to intervene or what to say, or, you know, like, and there's, it's just so there's so much going on and I, I want to learn like, um, not to put that on you. <laughs> um, but I would like to learn. I think there's probably a lot of, uh, a lot of white women like me who also want to learn and, and people of other, um, of other cultures, religions, races that like, how do we respond or how do we start conversations? Cause a lot of them are happening online. Do you have any advice on how to navigate that? Actually, um, I'm not online a whole lot. I don't post a lot. I do go and browse every once in a while. And I know a lot of these conversations are happening online, which is good and bad. It's good that the conversations are happening, but it's bad that it's happening in that context and that format, because there is no way to kind of gauge the tone of the conversation if you're just reading somebody's words. So it's easy to interpret it the way that you filter information because we all filter information that we receive based on our life experience. And so I, I think having moderators to 
really kind of pop in and say, okay, maybe we need to pause for a moment on this conversation and let everybody breathe, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of, kind of break it up some and then maybe open it up to have an open forum or um, host a panel discussion where, you know, people can come to get, actually come together who are contributing to the conversation to have an actual conversation and not a back and forth across social media because a lot of, a lot gets lost in translation. Just like when you're texting somebody, it can get lost in translation. You know, the person could think they're being funny, but the other person is having a bad day. So now they're offended. So the person over here is like laughing hysterically, like, oh, there's this funny thing. And the person over here is having a bad day. And they're like, what, what do you mean? And so you see how the communication quickly (laughs) goes awry um, just based on what's happening for people in the moment. Yeah, that reminds me of a, I don't know if it was a meme or something, but you know, the emoji where the hands are together, like namaste. And there's like debate if these hands are like prayer hands or namaste hands, or are they two high fives? And so there was a meme that was like something, something terrible. Like my mother is sick and someone responded with like these, the, the prayer hands, but then someone was like, those are high five hands, you know? And so even in those little things like the emojis or um, we all perceive the words and even those emojis differently to right. so much being lost in translation. Mm. Yeah. But like I said, it's good that the conversations are happening. I just wish that they would happen in a different format so that there's more um, more opportunity to understand one another rather than to go back and forth with words. So if there's, no, I was just saying word, go back and forth in in words only versus actually like you and I right now, we're able to see each other so we can kind of see, you know, nonverbal cues, facial expression. And so that's what gets lost also in tone of voice, inflection, you know, all of that gets lost if we're only relying on words. Right. Um, So you like suggest that if there's a big conversation happening and, um, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding going on or it's just, I even think like repetitive and like trying to repeat the same points, but both, both or more than both sides aren't really understanding would that be a good time to say, you know, what if we get together on also well, Zoom now? Um, what if we get together on Zoom and have a conversation about this? Because this doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere. Would would you like to set something up together? Do you feel like that's the? I think, yeah, I think I think that would be more responsible to get people in the room to you know have the moderator pull from you know, the online conversation and say, hey, these are the things that I see. These are themes that I see coming up where there's some breakdown of communication. Um, Would you be agreeable to having, you know, a a Zoom meeting, you know, a community Zoom meeting so that we can actually understand each other better and it's not to continue to perpetuate disagreement or argument, but to come together for more understanding. And so, you know, that lends to softening of what's happening online where, like I said, people can take things out of context, and especially online because 
we don't know people's background, worldview, experience, where they are even in the world, because something may mean one thing here on the East Coast means something different, and the Midwest means something different on the West Coast means something entirely different in another country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so That's true. Really taking into account those different um, different areas that people may be coming from and bringing their experience into the conversation. Yeah. That leads me to the question of like, what are your, as you trans or as you step into the presidency of the ADTA, what do you have, do you have an idea, like a concrete idea of like what your first kind of big actions are going to be? I'm not, not really etched out right now. Uh, and I'm, it's really formulating because I'm, you know, fresh into my president-elect role in just a few months. And so really kind of still gathering the information, pulling in the pieces and listening to different groups and what their needs are and seeing how we can be more inclusive and more equitable. Because like I said, uh, we're already diverse. And so the inclusion, equitability and inclusion are the, the two areas that I think we need to also focus on as well. So really, I mean, obviously we're not gonna be able to meet every single need of every single person, but if we can at least be in the ballpark, I think we've, we've made great progress of making people feel more comfortable, making people feel seen and heard and understood at least, and you know, and doing what's best for the association as a whole. So we're not focusing on one group of people over another group, because I know that's probably some conversation that's happening in the background somewhere. And so it's not about, you know, uh, moving people aside or throwing people away, but how can we, you know, come together for the good of the association so that we're around for another 56 years, you know? Mm. As you were saying that, I, I wanted to ask this question that is uncomfortable for me to ask and I'll own up to that, but I should ask it because I feel like it's out there. Do you feel like a lot of the responsibility is on us white folks to show up and support in a different way? Like if there was a bar, a pie graph, I guess, a pie graph of like the amount of shifting that needs to happen like is it a lot on us I think I think the majority because it's a predominantly white organization um, and so unfortunately the way that it looks if, if we had the pie chart it would look like a majority of the work does need to fall on the white membership and students um, and that's not to say that the other people aren't going to continue to do work. And, and I think I mentioned this last week in our conversation, that we have to address the hurt before we can even start to look at healing. And I think people just wanna jump directly to the healing piece of it, which is gonna be counterproductive. It's like having a scab. Like if you don't let what's underneath of it heal, you know, if you don't let, if you don't acknowledge the hurt of it first, you know, and, and then, you know, do things to address, okay, this is really hurting. You know, what do I need to do to take care of it? So that is, you know, less and less painful over time. And then it moves into a healing process. Um, 
we're missing the process part of it. We want to jump right from where we are today to reparations, healing, and let's move on. Mm-hmm. But we still need to address the underlying hurt because, you know, there's hurt all around, no matter, you know, which group of folks that we're focusing on that needs to be attended to. And so if we can start those conversations of, you know, from the place of hurt, what actually hurts? Know, and what is the, the solution? What is the ointment that needs to be applied to make this hurt start to heal? And so I think those are the conversations that at least I would like to see us talking more about, not in, in an um, accusatory sort of way, but just from a personal you know, perspective and introspection, like, you know, this is what hurts um, when people make assumptions or people assimilate or appropriate or, you know, don't take my voice seriously or don't take my hurt or my pain seriously, because that's also a thing. People are feeling like they've been hurt time and time again, and nobody's really paying attention and, and they're re-traumatized or re-triggered or re-harmed. Um, and there's never any type of acknowledgement of that. Um, then that, that starts to harbor resentment and then, then you get you know, the back and forth of, well, you didn't listen to me before, you know, why should I trust you to listen to me now or to do anything about it? And, and so to be able to do the things that we say we do with our clients, patients, students, as therapists, and that's always my first, first, first recourse. We're either training to be therapists, those um, who are students, or we are already therapists, whether you're a new professional or you know, a professional with years and years of experience. As a therapist, the same way you approach your work is the same way we need to approach each other as colleagues. Like, you know, my, my question, the question that pops into my mind is, what type of therapist are you if you can't show compassion to your colleague? Like, how, how am I to trust that you're able to do that with your client? And so I think even if we start to look at the, the things that we're taught in a program and, and the things that we're even taught as a counselor, therapist, um, psychotherapist, some of us go by, um, what are the principles that kind of guide you as a healer? Because therapists, counselors, we're healers on a mental health level, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, on an identity level. So whatever those things are that that even drew you closer to the field in the first place, why are we not showing that same level of empathy, compassion, um, you know, understanding and forgiveness, you know, all of those things, why are we not showing that to one another as colleagues? Do you have an ant like uh, speculation, like why we're not showing it? Um, well, it's the age-old thing of change. Change is difficult, right? No matter who's having to experience it, what the change is, if the change is great or small. And right now, especially with the ADTA, we are in the midst of significant changes because we're, we have a significantly different canvas of folks who are in the field. And so the newer generation of, of you know, therapists, they have a whole different mindset of say people who have been around for 50 years. What worked 50 years ago worked 50 years ago. Um, some of that may trickle down, yes, of course, but not 
everything that worked 50 years ago was going to necessarily work right now. And so allowing some room for grace of new ideas and creativity and, you know, intervention and ways of being, I think, opening up the realm of possibility um, is definitely an area where we, we can do better. Because yeah. I think that's probably one of what well, probably one of the sore spots right now uh, are the elders in the field are feeling like you know they're being you know put on an iceberg and drifted out to sea because they are feeling kind of irrelevant because the the younger you know generation of folks who are coming into the field the newer dance therapists are like we want to blaze our own trail um, but we didn't just start today so we have to meet in the middle. Like, you know, there has to be some give on both ends of, of the spectrum so that we can move forward because the, you know, the elders, everything that they've done to blaze the trail this far is important and is foundational, but also everything that the youngers want to do right now to continue to carry the torch is important because they also need to have some buy-in to feel like it's their own as well. And they're not just continuing, continuing to you know, drag on 50-year-old information um, that, that's outdated and, and irrelevant, but it's foundational and it's historical and it's still important. And so we need to make sure that we're taking things into context so that we can grow together rather than, you know, move apart or away from each other. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I know one of the things that's happening is, and has been, for a while, like uh, I interviewed Joan Wittig on this podcast probably three years ago. And she, I can't remember if she shared this in the actual conversation, but at, at the end of the, our conversation, she said she was going to explore um, different, she was going, I don't, I don't remember the words, but analyze the LMA uh, framework and that it's a very predominantly white framework or it's not very inclusive. And that has been a big conversation lately of, well, yeah, that's really foundational in, um, in dance movement therapy work as a movement and behavior assessment tool. But is it actually accurate or maybe not accurate, but reflective of different of multicultural of different cultures and the person who created it supported Nazis and you know was a Nazi supporter and all that like all this stuff is coming up and and it's important to talk about and yet um I can see like the fear of but what if what if we it's almost like I feel that as a field it's so hard for us to be seen as valid practitioners or healers using your word, like, right. Valid therapists that we have just like a few, I don't know if we would call it evidence-based, but like evidence-based hmm. assessments and to question one of those or like to um, get rid of it completely is very threatening. It's like that change, that fear of change that you're talking about. And what is that going to mean to our field? And um, what does that mean about everything that we've built up until now? 
Yeah, and that has been um, the topic of conversation, I know, across educational programs ever since uh, the students brought that up. Um, and, and from what I am taking away from that conversation is that people are not asking that it completely go away. People are asking that there's more transparency around um, Rudolf Baban as a person and you know, the actual use of that model um, and how it does not support different cultures um, just in terms of movement quality and dynamics and why are we only focusing on one or two, say um, the LMA and the KMP, uh, Kestenberg Movement Profile, why are those the only two when there are several others that could also be taught so that that mm -hmm. has been what I'm hearing. And so it's not the complete removal of it, it's, you know, let's also talk about some other assessments, movement assessments, you know, whether, you know, they can be incorporated or um, used across dance movement therapy with different cultures and, and, you know, different ways of moving. Why aren't we learning about those as well? Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Sure. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that was the fear when that came up is especially, you know, with, among the educators are like, well, we can't just take it out of the curriculum because that's, you know, the basis of it. And that's kind of the point is like, that's being, you know, centralized. Whereas you have other assessment tools that could also be introduced and taught on. Um, so that will require people to go and learn about other assessment tools from other cultures and how that works and fits in with dance movement therapy. Right. Um, so I want to ask you if you're okay with sharing, like what, um, a bit of your personal story, whatever you want to share, or if you don't want to share, that's okay. That brought you to become so passionate about being, um, an advocate for inclusion. Sure. Um, like I said, obviously, as you see, I'm a Black woman, um, but even just in my early education and all through undergrad, I was probably one of three, I want to say, Black people in all of my classes. So I've always kind of been in the minority, not just in terms of race relations here in, in the U.S., but also just in terms of representation. And so I really had nobody to talk to about my experience besides my parents you know, and family members, but educationally, that's always been a problem unless I just happen to have a black teacher. Um, and I've had several really awesome black teachers who became mentors. And that's usually the story of most, pe most black people who are in higher education and have gone on to get um, uh, terminal degrees is there was a black teacher who was, became a mentor to kind of help kind of push and guide and, you know, give support to that educational process. And, and it was the same at, even at Drexel in my dance movement therapy training. I was the only black person um, in our whole 65 people cohort of, across all of the dance movement therapy. So there were no black art therapists, there were no black music therapists, and I was the only black dance movement therapy student. And so for me, yeah. So for me, it's really about, you know, having representation, having support, giving voice to different ways of being in, in those spaces. And 
you know, and how it's easy to kind of go with the flow just to get out of school. Um, but when when we do that, we are, you know, neglecting a part of our ourselves in just in order to make it through, which I don't think is fair because as a therapist, I bring all of who I am to the space. Like I said, I'm an African-American woman. I go by Black. I'm a Black woman with um, Cherokee heritage, and I'm also... Um, Christian, but I'm, I'm not, you know, strict on religion. Um, and I say Christian, but I'm also more spiritual than anything because I do incorporate Native American practices into, you know, my daily rituals and, you know, different, pulling from different ways of being. And all of that shows up when I show up into any space, especially therapy, because I think it's important to model um, being authentic in a space. And so that, that has been my passion and my drive, you know, all along is kind of showing up authentically, unapologetically. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I do. Um, and it does not have to necessarily push against who you are because we can both be who we are and enjoy the same space and dance in the same space and kind of intertwine, you know, in a way that honors both of us. Yeah. And do you, do you say it outright? Like, are you like, this is who I am and this is what I identify with? Or is it just something like you're bringing non-verbally in the space, like always conscious of who you are and what you're bringing into each relationship? I don't necessarily explicitly state it. Um, if it comes up, then I'm more than happy to talk about it. But most people that I interact with, <laughs> they're like, yeah, I can really kind of see that you're really grounded, spiritual, really kind of, you know, owning who you are in the space. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I'm also not as talkative. Obviously, I'm talking a lot today because of, you know, being here with you. But I tend to kind of just take in the space more and I listen and watch because I'm also a visual person. I'm a visual learner. So I've taken a lot by just watching and listening. Mm. Sorry if you hear it in the background. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear it. I can hear it. Oh, okay, good. Um, yeah, so, and that, that kind of paints the picture of like, even within your own identity, like each person has a different way of navigating the space. Like you're more... Um, more like a sponge and more observant and take things in rather than explicitly stating it, whereas someone else might, you know, I'm thinking about like my old work at the hospital, like someone might come into a group and like, Hey, I'm here. I'm Jewish. Let's do this kind of thing. I don't know. I just made that up. But is that right? Like there's not one right way, but it's everyone's preferences and it's our responsibility to learn about like as we're building these relationships each person's um preference or like just be curious and open a space up for for uh, for learning about that absolutely and and i love that you just said that open a space up to be curious because that's really what it's about i don't have to beat you over the head and make you believe or you know act or dress the way that i do in order for us to be in relationship with one another, you know, and unfortunately people get so, um, so caught up in, in 
holding tightly to their identity that they are not able to see beyond who they are to see the difference in others and to be okay with that and to embrace that. And that may not necessarily be a cultural or ethnic or race thing that just may be a developmental thing um, because there's you know obviously so many other factors that come into play besides those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if there's my last question, if there's one tip or starting point that you could leave the listeners with, what would you say? I would say to be unapologetically you, to embrace your own uniqueness so that you can appreciate other people's uniqueness. And also to be curious and to not take yourself or others so seriously that you lose, you know, the the beauty of relationship. And I think that especially as adults, we are so living just right here in our head that we are so disconnected from our body that we forget to relax and to breathe and to be intentional about, you know, releasing. And it's okay to laugh. It's okay to play. It's okay to just let go and and having, you know, a safe space internally to do that will open up space for us to be able to do that externally. And I do realize that some people are not safe internally. So I don't want to act like everything is, you know, bubble gum and cookies because it's not like that for everybody. Um, And so really kind of spending time to get to know yourself so that you can appreciate the beauty and difference of other people. Thank you. Welcome. Is there anything else that you want to say before we end this conversation today? Um, Just that I I would really hope that, that people are open to the idea of having conversations that may be uncomfortable, that that's the thing, you know, that we tend to shy away from. We don't want to have difficult conversations or, or be vulnerable in a conversation or not have any knowledge or awareness of, you know, at least a little bit of everything that's going on in a conversation. But sometimes just holding the space and listening is all the presence that's needed because sometimes people just want to be heard. And so, Lending an ear, I think, is best practice in terms of getting to the point of building really healthy relationship. We don't have to solve everybody's problem. I I tell people all the time, if you are the solution to everybody's problem, that's going to be a problem for you because you're going to find yourself burned out very quickly. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I think that's really important to say, like, in having these conversations, we don't have to solve anything, right? It's like your, your scab metaphor of like, we don't have to, we don't have to peel that, well, we shouldn't peel the scab off, right? Before the healing is happening underneath the mm-hmm. this is a good visual, right? Um, <laughs> and I also wonder like, you know, if we can just practice kinesthetic empathy of like, not just listening with our ears, but with our bodies and tuning, tuning into our bodies of like, what's, what's coming up for me right now. And, and I wonder, are you feeling that too? And just 
creating the space to ask that or not, but, you know, ask it if there's anything that you do want to reflect back if that is welcome in the conversation and be open to no, that's not what I'm feeling or yes. And I don't know, just flowing or dancing in the, in the space from there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what it's about making, making room for something else to happen. Besides us wanting to orchestrate or control what's about to happen. So before we go, can you share about where people can follow you or connect with you more? Yes, absolutely. If you are interested in following me or learning more about me, you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram as Angela M. Grayson. Cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> we'll see My you there. pleasure having me yeah yeah this is really helpful and um i learned so much from you in our conversation we had like a 15 minute conversation last week maybe less and and today and i look forward to continuing to um to learn from you and just see and be a part of your stepping into the presidency and leading us Thank you. I look forward to it. And, and like I said, it's a process and it's okay. The process is what it is. You know, we don't have to rush it, skip steps, try to avoid it. We just need to go through it. Thank you. And if we yeah. go through it together, we'll be stronger on the other side. <laughs>